So now let's talk about some special considerations uh, when dealing with specific populations. When we think about the interaction and uh, safety lecture, we think more broadly about the safety when administering medications to all patients. This podcast is more to review the individuals that the individual specific or the excuse me the specific populations that need specific considerations when administering medications if it's secondary to differences in pharmacokinetics pharmacodynamics whether it's more than one client um, all of those issues need to be or most of those issues need to be considered with both the pediatric population um, the pregnant client population, and those in advanced age. And when we talk about those in advanced age, we let, use a general rule of thumb or, of 60 to 65 uh, years of age and older. So within the pediatric population, things that we need to think about um, include differences in um, pharmacokinetics and dynamics, Differences in blood-brain barrier. That's a concern when we have a client that has uh, that is uh, a neonate um, that's under the age uh, that is also under the age of six months old. There's differences in the formation of the blood-brain barrier. There's differences in um, metabolism and excretion. Um, there's differences in concentration of the urine, specifically uh, making it more difficult to actually pull some of the drugs out of uh, circulation and, and, and um, bring them into the bladder and get them out of the body. So those are, those are some things that we need to think about how they could change the administration of the drugs. Um, other things uh, that make the pediatric population uh, unique is that you're not just dealing with the pediatric client. You're dealing with the family, whoever the caretaker is, whoever is responsible for that child when they leave your office, they need to be engaged in uh, the exam, the, the planning, the medication administration, probably in the future um, once they leave the office. So they have to kind of, they, they have to understand more than, probably more than the pediatric client needs to understand what we're doing, why we're doing it, and the safety implications around the administration of these drugs. So even within the pediatric population, there's different age groups that re, that um, have different have differences in pharmacokinetics and dynamics. Usually, we try to clump um, um, neonates and infants. Um, um, neonates, so excuse me. So neonates are less than one month old. One month to one year are infants. One year to 12 years old are considered children. Um, and, then, and then looking at the, each one of those groups differently, there's differences in drug um, absorption, metabolism, um, really the, all of ADME, the A uh, administration, or excuse me, absorption, uh, distribution, metabolism and excretion. Um, once when you're looking at the younger um, aspect of the pediatric age group, so the the neonates and the infants, 
um, you have to think about differences in renal and liver functions. <clears throat> like I said, the, the kidneys aren't able to concentrate urine the same way. And if they're not able to concentrate urine the same way, then they're not able to get the drugs out of circulation. If their liver function isn't as robust as an older child, which it isn't, then the amount of drug that they can break down or metabolize is less. So they're probably going to need lower amounts of that drug. So that brings us into, as, as you're looking at that individual pediatric client, a lot of the drug um, dosages are based upon weight. Um, so this many millig two milligrams per kilogram per dose or 80 milligrams per kilogram per day div divided into four equal doses, which is the uh, example that we used in class. So looking at that, being able to calculate that out and figure out how many doses, how many milligrams per dose they're going to get, that would be important. Looking at that calculation and figure out, figuring out how many milligrams per day that they're going to receive, that could also be a possible question. And then the other thing to think about is if they're getting that many milligrams per day and it's a five-day um, five-day prescription, how many milligrams over the five days are they going to receive? So all those things we need to uh, consider when we're um, administering medications into the pediatric population. And then also we need to be very concerned in the pediatric population about allergies. That's going to be one of the main things. Remember, their airways are much smaller than the adult airway. So if they have an allergic reaction, their airway can spasm down or their, their airway could potentially spasm down uh, quickly and not be able to get any type of um, making it difficult to obtain any advanced airway in the pediatric uh, client. So <clears throat> especially when it's their first couple, first, if they have their first dose in the clinic setting or within the inpatient setting, um, especially antibiotics, most specifically antibiotics, they really need to be monitored for 20 to 30 minutes after they've received that drug. Um, that doesn't mean that all first dose medications are going to come through, uh, the, uh, through the clinic. Uh, some clinics don't have medication. Um, but if they do, they're giving drugs to uh, pediatric clients. I think it's well within reason and best practice if you're going to administer something like an antibiotic that we hold on to that client and their family member in the room for about 30 minutes, check on them frequently, make sure they're doing okay. And then at the end of the 30 minutes, we can let them leave um, and go back and continue, go back home and continue whatever drug regimen um, that they have been previous or that they've been prescribed. Uh, but especially with children, we need to be, um, we need to ensure that we're providing age appropriate teaching and explanation um, and atraumatic care is actually very important um, and not uh, relate things back to, um, you know, punishment. So if you act up during the doctor's office, in the doctor's office, um, then they're going to give you a shot. Or if you don't act the right way, the nurse practitioner is going to come back in and they're going to give you, or they're going to draw blood. All of those things you can't, we, we just need to discourage as much, as much as possible. And positive reinforcement is is key in the pediatric setting, especially if you want these kids to come back um, and you want them to participate in their care. 
But most of all, everything needs to be family-centered. However the family is defined for that individual uh, client, that's how we need to focus um, the education. Uh, We need to make sure that that family-centered care has the buy-in of the individual um, the individuals within that identified family uh, and just ensure that everyone's kind of on board and the plan that we're leaving them is truly going to fit their home, uh, their home life. When we look now at the pregnancy, the pregnant client considerations, uh, remember that we discussed there are two different types of FDA risk classifications. We're still going to stick with the A, B, C, D, X Uh, but also know that there is the PLLR, the pregnancy and lactation rule. Um, And know when you get into the inpatient setting and you get into practice in a couple of years, they will almost exclusively only discuss the PLLR and we're going away from uh, the FDA drug risk classification of A through X. Now, for our purposes, we need to know that the NCLEX has a lag of two to three years. Uh, So we're still going to understand A, is controlled studies in humans show no risk to the fetus, and B is no controlled studies have been conducted in humans, human or excuse me, and animal studies show no risk to the fetus. Um, so A and B, those are usually safe to give um, to the pregnant client, and C, no controlled studies have been conducted in animals and humans. Um, and so a lot of the drugs that you'll see will be category C. Um, but what we need to consider is that um, the OB doctor um, is a great reference or the OB provider, whoever that is, nurse practitioner um, or uh, physician, is a really good resource to angle those questions back to. Um, one of the best anti-emetic drugs, anti-nausea medications is on Dancitron, um, and that actually has been um, shunned a little bit because of some potential uh, birth defects in the past or uh, uh, for the risk of potential birth defects, uh, although um, it's still in use. Uh, We still use it frequently. It's now we've shifted it away from being a first-line nausea medicine to really a second or third-line nausea medicine in the pregnant client because of this. But it doesn't mean altogether that we're not going to use it. It just means if there's an alternative, we should probably um, use that first and just ensure that it um, isn't our first go-to drug. Um, And then when we get down to X, uh, this is basically a no-go. This should not be given to the pregnant client. It shows um, the risk to pregnant clients outweighs any possible benefit. So really, there's no reason to give those drugs. Um, I'm sure that if we look through the, the literature, there are maybe some drugs that we give that are category X, Um, but for our purposes as the entry level bedside nurse, we're going to remember that category X, we shouldn't give A and B. We almost always give and category C, um, is very frequently found, um, and still usually is safe, uh, especially with consultation with the OB provider. Uh, and then really when we get to D, D and X, I kind of put them together in a bag and I say, we, you know, we really probably need to find something else that is a better alternative that has a, has a safer side effect profile. And then we get into the advanced stage. Advanced stage then 
um, again, shows differences in uh, pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics. We need to start thinking about the beers criteria with the advanced stage. If you go through and look at the beers criteria, this list is, uh, this drug list is huge. Um, this is a list of drugs that have been shown to uh, decrease safety and in, in the medications increase uh, uh, total mortality and total morbidity. So with this list is within Brightspace and, and I really appreciate if you'd review the list. I'm not going to test you um, on which individual drugs are on that list, uh, but often we'll say, uh, we'll pause and we'll say, well, this drug is not a good idea because it's on the beers list. And so reviewing that list is uh, a very uh, key piece of being able to move forward uh, throughout the curriculum. The other piece is polypharmacy. We've talked about this before in the previous lecture. Geriatric population is is at very high risk for polypharmacy because they're on a lot of they're potentially on multiple drugs to begin with, and so we could have uh, each individual drug causing side effects or a drug to drug interaction causing some side effects, and um, then we also will add more medications to help with those side effects. And polypharmacy just is not. It's just, it's a hard road to go down um, and think that they're not going to have any adverse effects of the drugs, especially in the geriatric population because of the differences in kinetics and dynamics. So with the geriatric population, sometimes we actually have to peel away all the medications and get back down to just what they absolutely need. Um, and that kind of helps us figure out what symptoms are due to are secondary to what medications and are we just treating side effects of other drugs. It's really a good reset point sometimes if we're having symptoms that we can't fix or we can't cure or, um, you know, we just can't get the electrolytes under control or we can't get the kidney function back to where it needs to be or the individual is delirious. So sometimes they have to peel all the medications away and then uh, really start from scratch. Something else to, to note, especially in the elderly, um, is the fat, um, the body fat percentage in the elderly, um, it's higher. So potentially what that does is that it can hold on to medications. Um, and so it can cause an erratic release of the drug. Opiates and benzodiazepines are really good um, are really good examples of those medications. Uh, and so once we get into the opiates and the benzodiazepines, we can see that those drugs um, can cause a, a profound effect on respiratory rate and blood pressure. And so if we have erratic or profound release of these drugs that have been stored into the fat tissue, it can cause a profound drop in blood pressure, respiratory rate, oxygen saturation, and then potentially could lead to death. So we just have to be careful. We have to understand that these risks are, are part of administering drugs in the advanced age and, um, and take the appropriate safety precautions when we are administering these drugs. Something else to think about in advanced age uh, in the geriatric population um, is, again, looking at the client-centered teaching. So making sure that they can actually read what they're taking, making sure they can open up the bottles, make sure that they remember to take the bottles. Um, and then potentially we need to judge whether or not um, family needs to be involved in these drug administration uh, times as well. If we're getting multiple drug errors at home and we're, you know, if they're on a blood thinner and they're taking too many blood, they're taking a blood thinner twice a day when they only should be taking it once a day, that could have some uh, potentially negative outcomes. So, you know, getting the family involved, 
uh, a little bit on the early side is well within reason. Um, I think that it also can help family members um, and clients feel really supported and can get more people involved in the care, uh, which potentially leads to better outcomes. So I think overall, family involvement is absolutely needed. Um, and then simplifying the schedule is important too. If we have a drug that's given three times a day um, and is doing whatever job we want it to do, but we have another drug that can do that same job, but it's only given once a day, uh, to increase adherence to plan, really going to that once, once a day medication is going to really help simplify that schedule. You know, potentially cost issues come into factor, or we need to factor in cost issues when going to the one drug versus giving the drug that only is administered once a day versus something that's administered three times a day. Um, companies like to upcharge for convenience, and that and that runs into uh, pharmacology as or um, uh, into to big pharma as well. So um, just go back and think when you're going through the pediatric population, the pregnancy, the pregnant um, population, uh, those in advanced age. There are certain things that make administering medications to that population special. Um, and we have to think about those each time we give a medication um, and make sure that we're giving it the safest way possible and also making sure and ensuring, excuse me, um, that all of this remains client-centered. So, all right. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Thank you.